0: Amen. Ooh, you should probably look at the set list before you teach. <laughs> I'd have just stood in the hallway. Uh, thank y'all. Uh, today we're going to talk about Exodus 32 through 34. That may come as a surprise since you were on spring break last week, and I know what people do on spring break. So, but I'm calling this this one the play. We're gonna we're gonna treat it like it's a play. It's a three act play today. And so we're going to talk about what we learn in, in Exodus 32 through 34 in three different acts. That's not nope. Are we good back there? That's okay. He'll right your wrongs. Ah, <laughs> uh, There we go. So there's three acts. But as anybody knows, any good story, you can't just start at the play. There's got to be a prequel, right? How many of y'all saw Wizard of Oz and then you saw Wicked and you were like, oh, I never knew this story. So since we had a spring break and then we had Elam, I, if it's all the same with you, I'll just remind you of the prequel to this play and we'll just back up. And, and get us up today where we're at and where the story picks up. And so we've said from the very beginning that Exodus is, a, is about a God who rescues, redeems, and reveals. We saw this from the very get go that God is a God who keeps his promises. Promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made them in Genesis 12 and 15 and reiterates them throughout with them. And so right away in Exodus, we see God rescue a small baby boy named Moses and he redeems his, his murderous life and he calls him to rescue the Israelites. And in the most grandiose fashion, God rescues the Israelites out from Egyptian rule, destroying the idols that they had worshiped, destroying their pagan practices. And then he walks them across the Red Sea, rescues them out of that, and allows them to see their enemy vanquished before their eye as the Red Sea falls upon them. And then the Israelites get to walk with God, and they learn more about God, and they learn that despite their grumbling, despite their complaining, that he provides for them water, manna, quail. That at Mount Sinai, where our story picks up today, that they were attacked by the Amalekites and God brings them a victory. And then we learn that God, God, as he pinnacles up towards Exodus 19, invites them to be his people. Do you want to be my people? I will make you into a royal nation, a holy priesthood. Do you want to be my people? And they say, we will do all that you command. And he says, great, let me show you what I command of you. And he gives them the law. He gives them the 10 commandments and all the laws. And we learn that through the law, that it's both regulatory and that it tells us how to obey, but it's also revelatory and that it reveals to us who God is, what he cares about, that he cares about the poor and he cares about justice and he cares about women and he cares about things that only a true, good, righteous God would care about. And so we see all of that. And then in chapter 24, the pinnacle of Exodus is they say, We're in. Let's make covenant. And they kill the fattened calf and they shake the proverbial covenant hands and they make covenant with God and they have their wedding day with Him. And it's awesome. And then Moses goes up the mountain because God says, come on up here because you are my people now. I'm gonna tell you how to make a tabernacle. And that's where we spent the last few chapters learning how to make this tabernacle. And the whole point of the tabernacle was so that God could dwell with his people so that he could reveal more of himself to them. And so Moses goes up the mountain and we stop the movement of the story and we learn all about the tabernacle. And then the story picks up right here. This is where act one picks up. Moses has been up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Act one starts like this. And then all of a sudden the people are like, where did Moses go? It's been 40 days and 40 nights and they come to Aaron and they go, hey, that Moses guy, that Moses guy, you mean the guy who rescued you out of Egypt along with God, that guy? They're like, yeah, that Moses guy, he's not coming back. They start acting like the little kid that you take to daycare or the pool or play day or whatever. And you're like, mom going to come get you at the end of the day. And so at three o'clock, all of his friends get picked up and he's like, where's my mom? And then 3.15 comes and like the one kid who would never have talked to otherwise, but he was still there. So he's like, all right, I guess I can talk to Timmy. Like the weird kid, he gets picked up. And so then he's like, oh my gosh, I really don't have anybody now. And he starts panicking. And so he calls dad or he calls the babysitter. He Ubers home and suddenly mom shows up at 3.45 and she's like, pickup time doesn't end until four. This is what they're being like. He's not going to come back. He's not going to come back. And so they begin to honeymoon with somebody other than their God. They married God 40 days and 40 nights earlier, but they honeymoon with this idol. And what's worse is that Aaron helps them. Aaron, God's right-hand guy to Moses, the guy who was there when the the, the snakes were on the ground and and Moses throws his staff on the ground and his staff eats all those snakes. The guy who was there when the, the Nile was turned into blood and then the Nile was brought back to water. The guy who was there who heard the voice of God, this Aaron, the one that should know better, this is the guy who buckles and makes this golden calf. And so they make it. And what's really interesting is they're not actually violating the first commandment. They're violating the second commandment. It's not that they're saying Yahweh is no longer their God. Instead, they wanna worship Yahweh in the way that they wanna worship him by creating an idol. It's not that they've forsaken Yahweh. It's just they've forsaken the second commandment. We want something we can touch, taste, see, feel. Your pillar of cloud by day, your pillar of fire by night, not good enough. Your voice, not good enough. We want something we can touch. We want something we can control. We want something we can worship in a way that we understand. Don't we do that? Right, we, we want things that we can control, we can handle, we can manipulate because they make us feel comfortable. But oftentimes our spiritual walk is about things unseen. Those who have faith without seeing, those are the ones who are, who are truly blessed. So they make this idol, and then what's worse is all the things that they did in chapter 24 on their wedding day with God, their covenant-making day, they begin to unravel. They wake up early in the morning and they make a sacrifice to this new idol. The same thing they did in chapter 24. They make offerings to this new idol, the same thing they did in chapter 24. They married God, but now they're honeymooning with this idol. It's awful. I mean, can you think of anything worse that you would do? to a God who's given you everything, and suddenly now you're forsaking him with a man-made image, a bull, of this calf, and your leader Aaron is doing it with you? And then God gets hot, and rightfully so. We know that God gets hot because he does something interesting, and he says, your people, Moses, have rebelled. You ever do that, right, when you're like with your husband? And you're like, your son? And you know that that's how that story starts, and you're like, "This is not going to be a good one." Like, your son won the championship, and he's like, "Oh, okay, I did that great." No, no, your son rebelled. And so we see, we see God. These these were His people prior to this moment, right? My people, on me, this Hebrew on me, and right now, lo, on me, they are not my people. They're your people, Moses. And then God says, "They turned aside quickly." Forty days. I mean, how long would it take you if on your wedding day, you marry this guy, Bob, and Bob's like, babe, I gotta go. And you're like, okay. And he's like, but I'll be back. And you're like, okay. And then 40 days later, you're like, well, Tim, he's not back. So we've got this Costa Rican vacation. Are we good? No, why? Because you love Bob, right? You don't, you don't honeymoon with anybody but the one that you love. And yet in 40 days, they turn aside because they panic about their future. They panic about it and they return to their past in this. And God calls them stubborn. He says, you're a stiff-necked people, which is say that you're stubborn. In other words, they're not going to change. We've seen them from the Exodus. We've seen their unrelenting character that they continue to doubt me and they continue to want to go back to Egypt. In this moment, they go from Yahweh Israelites to Egyptian Israelites. We want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to our pagan worship. Look, we don't want to totally forsake Yahweh because, I mean, the dude saved us. But but the future looks scary, so I want to go back to where I was. And then God says something really interesting, and this is how Act 1 ends, is that he says, Moses, leave me alone, right? He says, let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. This is how Act 1 ends. God says, Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to start over with you and I'm going to destroy all of them. So intermission, curtain comes down and we go out and we're like, what is he going to do, <laughs> right? Do you think he's going to destroy them while you're ordering your popcorn and your soda waiting for act two? Because they deserve it, right? But what should we learn from act one? Well, this is what we should learn from act one is that don't fear your future and stay out of your past, The crazy thing about this story is that what they wanted so badly was something they can touch, taste, and feel an experience of God. And that's what Moses is up on the mountain doing. He's coming down with plans for the tabernacle, things they could touch, things they could see, things they could smell, the incense, the sacrifice, the burnt offerings, all of these things were gonna be things they were gonna get to interact with God and experience him and worship him. Things that God gives us because he knows that we're physical beings. It's why we take communion. It's why we do baptism. It's why we do things because God knows that sometimes we need to feel him. And he was gonna give them all of that, but they feared their future. And so because they feared their future, they ran to their past. Don't we do this? Like, I, I know I do this. Right, I look at my future and maybe some relationship is, is, is rocky. And so suddenly the fear of abandonment from my past comes creeping up. And the way that the fear of abandonment creeps up for me is manipulation. So my past style of manipulation suddenly is right there because I fear my future, I run to my past. And I'm not forsaking Yahweh. I'm not forsaking God, but I wanna play in my past. And we shouldn't do that. And why? Because we can trust the one that holds our future. Why do we trust? Because Moses wasn't gonna leave them, God wasn't gonna leave them, he was never gonna abandon them. Proverbs 31, which talks about this industrious woman, it talks about she is clothed in strength and dignity, and she laughs at the days to come. Why does she laugh at them? Because she's not worried about her future. She knows who holds her future. Paul in Philippians 3 is in prison. Prison. And he says, I forget what is behind and I press on towards what is ahead. We don't need to fear our future because we know who holds it. So we come back from intermission. That's act one. And we're like, okay, well, he's going to blot him out and, or blot them out. And he's going to start out with Moses. And then act two picks up. And what do you think Moses is going to do? Right? This same Moses that they have oftentimes forsaken him. I mean, the way they talked about this Moses guy, he's up on the mountain. And Moses has one of his best leadership moments, probably in all the first five books of the Bible, rather than going, you know what? I'd like to be the guy and they get on my nerves. So yeah, all right, wipe them out and find me a new honey. That's fine. We can do this. He doesn't do that. We pick up in act two, in this incredible moment of humility, and Moses reminds God, hey, they're your people. He reminds them, they're, they're your people. And not only that, God, I, I, I would love to be the guy, but you also love Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so you've already started something with them. Let's, let's keep going with them. And not only that, why would why would we allow the Egyptians to have this moment of, of revelry over our sin? Let's not do that. Let's not give them the, the satisfaction of you destroying them. They're your people, God. And you know what God does? He relents. This is one of those moments that Dinah already mentioned. Is this a moment when God changes his mind? Is this a moment when God changes? And we can get into all the details of that. But what we do see in scripture is that there are oftentimes when God comes to leaders and he says to them, this is the calamity that is coming. We see this in in Abraham's life when God comes and says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in chapters 18 and 19 of Genesis. And Abraham goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. What if there's 40 people? What if there's 30 righteous people? What if, and he, and he negotiates with God and God allows him to partake in this. He allows him to intercede. And this is something that we learn about leaders is that in moments when God comes to you, it is your role to love those you lead. And Moses loved them enough to forsake the opportunity to be the guy. And he reminds them, no, they're not my people, God. They're your people and you love them. And, and I don't wanna start over with just me. I want you to love your people. It really is an incredible moment, but they did sin. And so part of act two isn't just that God relents and we go down the mountain and we're like, my bad, like there's gonna be consequences for this. And so Moses heads down the mountain and he meets up with Joshua and Joshua is probably the only one who looks really good in this story that's not Moses because he's up on the mountain staying put where he belongs, which is something to be said for your children, right? Right. Do you want to be like Joshua or do you want to be like Aaron? (laughs) Yeah. But God, you know, sends Moses down the mountain and Moses gets down and he sees the... The, the revelry that's going on, the the pagan worship and all that. And Moses has the two tablets in his hands, and this isn't a moment of total anger and irateness for Moses. This is symbolic. What Moses is going to do? He's got the two tablets, and the reason why there's two is because God has large handwriting. I'm kidding. The reason why the reason why there's two is because this is an ancient Near Eastern tradition that one would belong to the God and one would belong or to the king, one would belong to the vassal, and this represent like this is your part of the covenant, this is our part of the covenant, this is a this is our covenant with each other, and so we both have the stones representing what our parts are in this covenant and so when Moses breaks these two tablets he's essentially saying the covenant is broken because of your rebellion God's not going to destroy you but you broke the covenant the very spot where it was made 40 days earlier the very spot where the wedding took place now on this honeymoon of idolatry is where the covenant is broken And before this worries you, this is one of those covenants that wasn't universal. This wasn't unilateral. This wasn't like the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob where God's gonna keep his end of the bargain and Abraham was off sleeping when they made the covenant. And this isn't like the covenant that God makes with you in light of his son where he says, no matter what you do, I will love you if you accept my son. This isn't one of those. This was conditional and they broke it. They broke it. And so in a moment of of symbolic appropriateness, Moses breaks these tablets and then Moses comes down and does what's also appropriate and takes that calf and he burns it up and he, and he smashes it and he puts it in the water source. And as we talked about in the huddle today, there's a couple of theories as to why he did this, but the one I especially like is because then people wouldn't go in looking for the gold because you're going to drink it and then it's going to come out as excrement. And I don't know how desperate you have to be for gold to begin mining there. And so I'll just let that sink in. But it's a fitting in for an idol. It's a fitting in for what they'd done. They can't recoup that. That's truly a loss. And then Aaron is confronted, and if this is Moses' best moment, this might be Aaron's worst moment. And he comes to Aaron, the guy who was his right-hand guy, and he says, what could the people have done to make you do this, Aaron? And Aaron pulls an Adam and an Eve, goes right back to Genesis 3, which is what we all do in these moments when we're confronted and we shift blame. If you remember, Adam's like, that woman you gave me? Well, she baked the apple pie. I didn't even know it was apple. Like, it was got, things got weird, I don't know. And she was talking to the snake. I try to stay out of their business. I think that's in scripture, I don't know. Yeah, something like that. It's a loose paraphrase, the message version. So, yeah. So, so Moses comes to Aaron and he's like, what have you done? And Aaron's like, I put the metal in and an idol came out. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I would have read more Bible when I was younger because I would have tried some of these on my parents. <laughs> I put the key in the ignition. It drove itself to that party. <laughs> <laughs> Moses doesn't even respond to Aaron and one commentator says it's almost as if he's not going to dignify it with a response. Aaron... What did you do? It just came out on its own. (laughs) I told you it's a play. It has to be dramatic. (laughs) And then because Moses is a great leader, he offers to make atonement after this. And God says, you can't. You can't. Because Moses, you're a sinful man. I know you're being the best leader that you can possibly be right now, but you're a sinful man. You cannot make atonement for them. And this speaks to Moses' love for them. It's the same love that we see in Paul when he says, I would rather be separated from God forever than for my fellow Jews to not know you in Romans 9. We see this. This is what true leaders do, that they're willing to give everything for their people, but what he offers to God is not acceptable. You cannot exchange one man's sin for another man's sin. The only perfection can make atonement for our sin, which is what we see in Christ perfectly on the cross. It's the only reason why Christ can make salvation possible for us. And so this is, we're coming up to the end of, of act two and act one, we're like, oh, rebellion. And act two, we're like, oh, good, he relented. But then we get to the end of it and, and the, probably the saddest part of all is what's gonna happen next. Is that God then tells Moses, hey, y'all need to go on, continue on to the promised land, but I'm gonna give you a messenger that goes with you and it's no longer gonna be me. It was God and the people, or excuse me, God, Moses and the people, but now it's gonna be God and angel, Moses and the people. There's, there's distance now. And the reason why is because God is kind. And he says, if I get close to you, I may destroy you. Your sin is such that my holiness, if it gets any closer to you, it may destroy you. And so I have to separate myself from you some more. And this is what a good father does is that there are consequences for their sin that will hopefully lead them to repentance. So they become more separated from God. It's just this sad act too. I mean, act one, we're kind of like, oh, this is exciting. They're rebelling. What's going to happen? Act two, we get this high of like, oh, he relents. But then we see there's destruction. The Levites go through the camp and they kill off anybody who's not willing to repent. 3,000 are dead. The dust has settled. Everybody's staying there. And God has now distanced himself from his people because he cannot get any closer. And then we just stand there. And this is how act two is beginning to end. And Moses says, but God, I can't go without you. And God looks at Moses and he reminds him, hey Moses, listen, I'm merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Remember that Moses, I know I can't draw near to you, but I haven't changed who I am. And so because Moses knows who God is and because he allows God to be intimate in his life and he's intimate in his life, the Moses makes one last plea, this moment in Acts 2 and ends like this or act 2. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And God, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us again for your inheritance. I mean, the act two is just sad. People are dying. God's far from them. But in the midst of it, God goes, hey, Moses, I am who you think I am. And so act two ends with Moses going, then forgive us. I know I can't make atonement, I know these consequences that we have, they don't make atonement, but you can forgive us. And this is how act two ends. And so curtain falls and we go to intermission and you're like, well, I had the popcorn last time, so I think I'm gonna get a Snickers. And then you look at each other and you go, would you forgive them? I wouldn't. So what's this so up for us in, in act two It's that leaders love those who lead, or those who they lead, and so we should love those who we lead. And we'd be mistaken if we think that this was about Moses loving those who he lead. It is. But more so, this is about God who loves those he leads. He loves them enough to give them consequences so that they re- may repent. He loves them enough to remind them in the midst of their rebellion, in the midst of their pain, that I am still the God who is slow to anger and abounding in love for you. I mean, think about those moments when you're disciplining a child because they've done something really, really bad. And in the moment of that, you're like, sweetie, I'm slow to anger and abounding in love for you. I may kill you, <laughs> but, but my feelings for you have not changed. And so we, we get this reminder and Moses just begs for mercy. And then act three comes and the curtain goes up and we come and sit in our seats and I'm, if I'm in the audience, I'm going, why would you forgive them? I wouldn't forgive them. They're not going to change. Look at all that they've done. They've forsaken you every turn of the way. And then act three, curtain comes up. God looks at Moses. He says, Moses, cut two more stones. Let's do this again. Let's do this again. What kind of God does that? A God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He says, behold, I am making a covenant. A covenant right after your rebellion, right after your sin, right after your idolatry, behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels, such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you, you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. What kind of God loves people like that? There's one I wanna follow. So what's the so what of act three for us? It's that God is faithful despite our failures. You've heard this from us if you were here in Genesis, right? We, we told you that the theme of Genesis was that God's faithful despite our failures. And after we finished Genesis and we went on to Mark, I was going, guys, I think that might be the, the theme of Mark. And then we got to Exodus, like, it might be the theme of Exodus. I think we might put a, the whole theme of the Bible in Genesis. So it's fine. It means we're right. We're just maybe not as right or as we could have been. But yeah, we see this throughout Scripture. God's faithful despite our failure. Faithful despite our failure. Faithful despite our failure. We, we married God and then we honeymooned with an idol and then immediately after the honeymoon he comes to us and says, hey, put your ring back on. Let's go. You're still my people and I love you. And so they make covenant again. And so what's, what's the big so what of all of Exodus 32 through 34? I thought about this. When I was younger, I, I would love to ask people questions about scripture of like, would you rather be Moses or would you rather be Joshua? And what I meant by that was, would you rather see God's face, his back, or would you rather be in the promised land? Because Moses doesn't get to go to the promised land. Joshua does. Joshua gets to march around, blow the trumpet, Jericho falls. I'm like, that's pretty awesome. And Joshua's got a pretty good life. I mean, he's up on the mountain. He's like, I didn't do anything, right? I remember one time, this is family secrets, but I'll tell him. So... Uh, there were, when my mom and my stepdad got married, they had, he has three kids and we have three kids and the merge was not uh, always successful at times. And so his youngest son was just a pain. I mean, he's just a pain because he he's a kid, right? And so one day his youngest son took some uh, automatic clippers and like shaped a little bit of the oldest son's hair on the back of his leg. So uh, retaliation, of course, escalates. Y'all know how this works. So every other sibling, except for me, and not because I was above reproach. I just wasn't there. Held him down and shaved off his eyebrows. And so, <laughs> yes. And as you can imagine, <laughs> when he has to go back to his mom's, things are not going to go well for my stepdad. And uh, they're about to go on family vacation. So photos are now ruined all that. And I'm kind of like, well, he had it coming. But... So, the whole family's there. Stepdad finds out about it. And I, my stepdad is the most even-killed man I've ever met. And so, I can name, like, on one hand, the amount of times I've seen him visibly angry. And this is n- numero uno. And he comes out of the room, and he is fired up. And he looks right at me, and he's like, did you have anything to do with this? And I'm like, oh, no. And I have never been so thankful to be at school in my entire life. I was like... Because I knew. I was like, I probably would have. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Probably. Yeah, Probably. So yeah, so as one of those moments. So I always tell me, like, do you want to be Joshua? Who's like looking good throughout all of scripture and Moses who has his ups and downs. He gets to see the back of Moses. But the problem with this question is that I often fancy myself Moses when in fact in this story, I'm, I'm the Israelites, right? Or maybe, maybe at best I'm Aaron, maybe at best, but probably the Israelites. And not even the good Israelites who after the Levites come through and go, hey, will you return to Yahweh? And they're like, yes, I'm probably the one that's like, no. And then I got the sword. That's more so what I'm like. But I've always been envious of Moses in the story because he got to see God's glory. And then suddenly I started reading my New Testament, which I recommend if you haven't done that. (laughs) And I came across a passage in 2 Corinthians 3, and it really spoke to me. And I've, I've dwelled on this all week, and it's brought me to tears multiple times. But especially in verse 18, it says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we don't have veiled faces, and we behold the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Some translations to ever increasing degrees of glory. Moses, friends, should be jealous of us. The big so what from this is we look at this story and there are things that we see God do, that we see God get angry and that's appropriate for God to get angry in the Old Testament because Christ has not come. But on this side of the cross, Christ's wrath and anger has been poured out on his son so he does not get angry with us in the same way. And we see Moses begging God to show him his glory and God has to tuck him in the cleft of the rock and only be able to show him the backside because if he gets any closer, he'll die. And I stand with an unveiled face before my savior, beholding his glory and being made into his glory. I own his glory. What a gift. So the big so what for this is, I'm just glad I'm not living then. That's the big so what we can take away from here. The scripture tells us where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is, that his spirit indwells inside of me and that his glory is my possession today. It would be irresponsible or almost remedial to ask to see his glory when in fact it's mine and I own it and all I have to do is walk in it. And so if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have something greater than even what Moses got in this passage. And so may we never take that for granted. Let me pray for y'all. Father, we love you. We love that we can come with unveiled faces and stand before you. I know that your wrath was completely and utterly poured out on your son on our behalf so that we walk freely in your camp and freely before you. And we get to see your face when we behold your son, who's the visible image of the invisible God. So Father, help us to live in light of that. Help us to live as people who behold your glory. Help us to live as, as Moses's and Joshua's in this story rather than the Israelites and Aaron's. But God, remind us that even when we play the part of the Israelite, we run back to our past, that we know that you have paid the penalty with your son on the cross and we are truly indeed free. It's in your son's name we ask these things, amen.